Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm your host, Mike Allen. You know, we hear more and more these days about how bears, coyotes, deer, moose, and even mountain lions are cramping our space in Connecticut. Some would say we're cramping their space, but regardless of where you come down on that argument, you can't leave your pet outside for fear of them having a face-to-face encounter with this treacherous wildlife. Well, if you turn the clock back 200 million years ago, you would have had to keep Fido on a much shorter leash because you would have been contending with dinosaurs. And here today to talk about what Connecticut was like during the dinosaur era is Michael Ross. He's the Environmental Education Coordinator at Dinosaur State Park in Rocky Hill. In just a moment, when dinosaurs roamed Connecticut. I'm Kathy Hermes with Connecticut Explored Magazine. In print and in our podcast, Grading the Nutmeg, we bring you fresh, fascinating, and inspiring stories of the people and places in Connecticut. If you're a regular listener to Amazing Tales, we know you'll love our podcast. Interviews with authors, historians, and changemakers co-hosted by the State Historian Emeritus and the publishers of Connecticut Explored. Available wherever you get your podcasts and at ctexplored.org. Check it out. Well, we don't have time in this episode to debate evolution versus creationism, but one thing we do know is that the fossil record is quite clear. There were dinosaurs who used to roam the Earth, including here in Connecticut. Now, scientists are going to tell us that the Earth is about 4.6 billion years old, and three eons filled the first 4 billion years. Now, those first three eons featured in eon number one, the Big Bang, in eon number two, the Earth's core and crust stabilizing. And in eon number three, the formation of oxygen allowing all of our life forms to survive. So all of that took four billion years. Now, we're right now in the fourth eon, and that started about 540 million years ago. And the highlights so far for our eon are animals forming hard shells, and that enabled fossil discovery. We had the emergence of fish and, yes, cockroaches. Then we had the breakup of that thing you've maybe heard of, the single Pangea landmass into today's continents. So all of our land used to be just one, Pangea, but then it broke apart. We also had in our eon the dinosaur period, which is about 200 million years ago. And then we had, my favorite, the so-called extinction event. That was about 65 million years ago, and it wiped out dinosaurs and everything else on the planet. Now, in this 540 million years, our fourth eon, humans have only been around for the equivalent of a geologic split second, just about 250,000 years. Well, when Pangea split apart, we suddenly had these huge tectonic plates floating around the oceans, forming our continents. They either split apart or they bumped into each other, and that's how they formed those huge mountain ranges. Well, Connecticut detached from what is present-day Africa and ended up where we are on the east coast of North America. What we also know is that dinosaurs left behind footprints, skeletons, and other evidence of their existence. For example, there's even skin markings from mud that they left behind. The word dinosaur, by the way, means terrible lizard. Well, evidence of these terrible lizards in Connecticut exists near the banks of the Connecticut River south of Hartford. And that's where Michael Ross works as the Environmental Education Coordinator at Dinosaur State Park in Rocky Hill. Can you sort of try and paint a picture of what Connecticut looked like back then and what these dinosaurs looked like? Well, it's important to realize that the only fossil record that we have in Connecticut 
of dinosaurs is actually from the late Triassic and the early Jurassic. So that's about 200 million years ago. That is about 150, 175 million years before um, dinosaurs went extinct. And so the dinosaurs that existed during that time period were not the size of T-Rex or brontosaurus. Those dinosaurs would not come for another few million years. So the dinosaurs in Connecticut were much smaller. One of the largest carnivore meat-eating dinosaurs was probably the one that made the dinosaur tracks at Dinosaur State Park. Now, we don't know exactly what dinosaur this is, but it was about five feet tall at the hip, and it was about 15 feet long, including the tail. We know it was a carnivore because it has three toes. It walked kind of upright, and we theorize that it may have eaten fishes, but also scavenged as well, just because of where the dinosaur tracks were located. At Dinosaur State Park, we know there, that the tracks were created in some shallow and, and deeper water. So that's one of the dinosaurs that was in Connecticut at that time period. We also know that there were some prosauropods. So these are the dinosaurs that came before brontosaurus and all of those long-legged long and, and long-tailed dinosaurs. So we have those two larger dinosaurs. We have a theropod, the meat-eating dinosaurs, and then we have the prosauropod, which is likely a herbivore, plant-eating dinosaur. We don't often find skeletons in Connecticut, but we did find a skeleton, and that was found in near where the Buckland Hills Mall is. And it was found, I think, in the late 1800s or so. So that was probably about the size of a large dog. It had a little bit longer neck. It had a smaller head. It had the, the right teeth to, to eat plants, and so we know that it wasn't a carnivore. The Buckland's Mall is in what town? Uh, Manchester. Uh, and then we also find some other smaller tracks that indicate that there were some other smaller dinosaurs, and they were about the size of a chicken. And so we have evidence for these three or four different kinds of dinosaurs based on those tracks, and they were likely all over Connecticut. But we only find those fossils in the center of Connecticut because that's where the sedimentary rock is. Uh, also, the glaciers came through and erased a lot of those those tracks, and so that's why we primarily find them them in Connecticut, and also all the way up into Massachusetts. And it wasn't just dinosaurs around that time, but we also had early reptiles and early crocodilians. So we find these smaller tracks that are about the size of a quarter that have four to five toes, and those are early crocodiles. We find in New Britain area, a very rare find, a number of tracks that have these long toes, and there's five toes. And as we know, Mammals have five toes or five fingers, and so these are very early mammal tracks. So we can really, based on these tracks and other fossils that we're able to find, we can really start to paint the picture that it wasn't just one or two dinosaurs in Connecticut, but there's a whole ecosystem that included dinosaurs, included reptiles, it included mammals. We find some insect traces also in Connecticut, and then we also find some fish fossils in Connecticut as well. So let's try and do this for just a second uh, you know I'm on a horse or something and I'm riding from Greenwich at Long Island Sound up to Hartford and going right past Rocky Hill do I have a chance of making it as a human being with meat-eating dinosaurs all around me is it that densely populated with dinosaurs in your best guess I mean I know this was 200 million years ago but what do you think was the situation we know that at Dinosaur State Park we have over 2,600 tracks it's not just a dinosaur state park. The tracks also extend across the street onto other properties. We know that there were tens of individuals here, you know, maybe 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 individuals here at one point. 
in order to determine the past and what it was like in the past, we always look to the present. And so we look for animals that may have behaved like those animals in the past. If we see tracks that look like they're herding, then we look to animals that herd and we can kind of get a sense of maybe the numbers and what they were doing and those sorts of things. So we know that these dinosaurs, there were a lot of them, and they all were together at one point over the span of a couple days or a couple weeks. We know that there were a lot of these dinosaurs. It wasn't just one or two, but there were a lot. So if you were yes, traveling from one part of the state to the other part of the state, you would see them probably as much as maybe you see deer. To the best of your knowledge, did we have dinosaurs that were airborne like birds? Dinosaur, there are no flying dinosaurs. And so those animals that we often think of, like pterodactyls, they were actually considered flying reptiles. And so we do know that there were some flying reptiles around Connecticut because we found some fossils, let's say, up north where the continents were at that time and then down south where the continents were at that time. So we're postulating that, of course, their range also extended through Connecticut. I want to talk to you about sort of how this all began, because this is a fascinating part of the story. I guess it was the 1960s, and to put a face and a name on it, a guy named Edward McCarthy is operating a backhoe at the site, about to do a project for the state of Connecticut. And what happened? They were building a, or intending to build a state laboratory, and so they were preparing the foundation or the basement for it. He was uh, doing what he needed to do and, and kind of break up the rock to get down to where they needed to get to. He broke up the rock and he saw something kind of on one of the rocks and he went over to it and he flipped it over and he identified what he thought to be a dinosaur track. And he was right. So he went to tell his supervisor. Somehow the word got out to some of the politicians and the university professors and some of the other heads of the museums in Connecticut at the time. Within a matter of an hour or so, there was a whole bunch of people that kind of flocked down to this location. They wanted to look at the tracks for themselves, and if necessary, they wanted to take the tracks so that they were not damaged. But as they started to investigate a little bit more, they realized that they could not take all of the tracks because there were thousands of tracks here. And so then they started to put forth the idea of stopping this operation, stopping this construction, and trying to preserve the tracks. And that's essentially what ended up happening. But even then, I, as I understand it at least, there was uh, the need to put up a fence around the site right away to keep people from coming in and taking stuff. Yeah, the word got out really quickly that there were these dinosaur tracks. And so there were people that would come in the nighttime and try to cut the tracks out and take them back. Some people did get them. Um, and their grandchildren are now coming forth and saying, you know what, I think the grandfather took one of those tracks. <laughs> they had to have 24-hour security. Uh, I've heard that uh, the security was often local college students because they could stay up all night. Over the next several months uh, and years, there was a lot of uh, political pressure to protect these tracks and to um, establish some sort of preservation, whether it was a state park or, or something else like that. Well, it's fascinating, I think, the sort of science that was approached. I mean, you had to go below the frost line to make sure that they wouldn't uh, freeze and thaw, which would, of course, break up the tracks. But it involves such things as, you know, polyurethane foam and black plastic tarps. Can you talk about that? The tracks were originally 12 feet under the surface of the ground. And so those tracks had not been exposed to the environment for 200 million years or something around there. You're right. They wanted to protect them from 
the weather and from the frost or freezing damage because when water gets cold and freezes, it expands, and that will crack and, and destroy the tracks. So what they did was they were coming up with various solutions, and it was a little bit of a trial and error. But eventually, they actually found some company to help them to develop this product called DinoSeal, and it was some sort of polyurethane, some sort of sealant, but they coated all of the tracks in the sealant, which was supposed to help keep moisture out. To make sure that the water didn't penetrate, they also installed black plastic above that, and then they put some foam above that as well. The reason that they were trying to preserve them so well is because they wanted to build a, a structure over all of these tracks, over the entire trackway, but there was not enough funds to do that. And so they had it temporarily covered with the plastic and some tires to keep it down, and then they eventually realized that they're never going to get the funds, and they better do something to preserve these tracks, otherwise all these tracks would be destroyed. And then on top of that, they uh, put two feet of sand to get below the frost line so that the the water wouldn't freeze down there. Now, as I understand it, that even on top of the sand and everything else, you ended up having a, a green field. I mean, kids could run across it and whatnot. It would look just like a regular field, but underneath it was this rather intricate coverage of the uh, track. Is that the case? Yeah, so if you come to Dinosaur City Park, you're walking towards the exhibit center, you look to the right, you go down the little uh, sidewalk there, and there is. It looks like a field. We did put some dinosaur silhouettes on top of it to signify that the tracks are underneath. But underneath that, there's over 1,600 dinosaur tracks that have not been studied since about 1976 when it was covered. Now, I understand also in the year, I think, 2000 or so, somebody said, better just do a test dig to make sure this is working. Was that the case? So uh, it was a little bit later. It was in 2012, I believe, or 2013. And one of the reasons that they did that is because they did want to check the tracks because the 50th anniversary was coming up in 2016. And so there was some talk and some thoughts about expanding over that trackway for the 50th anniversary. But before they did that, they wanted to open up the tracks to see how they looked, to see if it was uh, even feasible. So they did that. They dug down about the two feet. They carefully removed the plastic and the foam. They had really good aim because when they dug down and removed the plastic, they were right on top of one of the tracks and it was still outlined with the original chalk. The people in attendance there, they identified that it was in pristine condition. It really hadn't changed much in the, uh, the 40 years or so since it was buried. And so that's a really good sign because that means that likely all of the other tracks are also in very, very good shape. So you have 1,600 tracks preserved underneath this ground uh, structure, and you have another 500, though, or so that are available for public viewing. Tell us about that. So altogether, we have over 3,000 tracks and likely more as well, even outside of that area. Just so people understand why there was so much enthusiasm about this find back in the 1960s, isn't it true that it was the largest fossil trackway ever found globally at that time? I believe it was, yes. There was a large amount of tracks, and we're still one of the largest trackways in the country. We are not the largest, but we are one of two or three that have actually built a structure over their tracks to preserve them. Many of the other locations, they're too big or they don't have the funding, and so those tracks are just exposed to the weather. And if they're not preserved like the ones at Dinosaur State Park, then eventually they will disappear just like everything else does because of, of erosion and weathering. Could you describe the prints themselves? I've heard 
tails that they are say 10 to 16 inches in length and three to four feet apart which would indicate a you know as you've said a pretty good sized dinosaur they do have three toes i'm not saying the dinosaur has three toes but at least whatever toes touch the ground were three toes you can see some claw impressions on them and they are about roughly 10 to 15 16 inches in length from the longest toe to the heel the tracks are all consistently about, like you were saying, two and a half to three feet apart. So what's interesting about this is that when we, we do the calculations and we measure the size of the feet and the stride length and all of those things, then we know that these dinosaurs were not running, but they were just kind of walking around the area. And that paints quite a picture just by itself. You have such an incredible park there, and I'm not sure everybody knows this part of the story, but it almost wasn't a park until some kids started a campaign of writing letters to the governor to try and force this. What can you tell me about that? We do have some information that there was this letter writing campaign among the school children. I think the, the school children in Rocky Hill certainly started it and then it expanded out to the rest of the state, many schools in the rest of the state. The school children and the teachers and the general public, they knew the significance of this and they wanted it preserved. So the school children were really instrumental in solidifying the status as a state park. Well, we know it can be hard to say no to a child, but that many children makes it even more difficult. What is the significance of the park being a national natural landmark? Well, it, it certainly helps everyone to recognize the importance of the area. This part of Connecticut at that time was actually connected to a portion of Africa. Having that designation, it really helped us to see that it's not just this local or this national significance, but it's really this global significance. Michael, as an environmental scientist and geologist, does it drive you crazy to understand that you work at a park where you have all this preservation and you know right across the street there's more of this, but unfortunately there's buildings on top of it? Uh, yeah, you know, it's a little bit difficult. Connecticut is a unique state. It's a small state, and unfortunately we cannot preserve everything that's found. wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path. Well, Connecticut still hasn't raised enough money to completely enclose and protect those 1,600 or so dinosaur tracks still on the site. They're ultimately subject to Connecticut's unpredictable weather conditions, and we can only hope they survive into the future so scientists can learn even more about the past. If you haven't been to Dinosaur State Park, by the way, I highly recommend it. You can make your own plaster cast of a dinosaur print and take it home with you. And trust me, it's a conversation starter at any party. Well, if you like this show, make sure you follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And this way you'll know when the next episode is published. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and please stay healthy.